is uh, by show of hands is tracking a friend who's running CIM right now, running the marathon. Okay, my, my daughter is Josh Wood. For those who know Joshy, Josh is running right now. So I didn't get his, his bib number, so I haven't uh, been tracking him, but um, we're, uh, we're missing him today, but excited for him and um, excited that we're not doing it. Amen? Right? Right? I was just, uh, I was talking to Tom Hare earlier. Tom and I and Sean ran this thing uh, six years ago uh, to the day, and uh, Tom destroyed us, um, and I am so glad I put in the little caption after I finished. It was a, like a finish photo of, of Tom and Sean and I. And I said, I don't know why anybody would ever do this twice. Um, and I stand by that um, six years later. Um, so anyway, CIM's uh, going on. Hey, if you have a Bible, pull it out. Uh, in just a minute, we're going to dive into Scripture and um, a little bit more on that in a second. But if you um, are using the kind of Bible that you have to turn on instead of open up, uh, go to Uversion. If you haven't downloaded that app yet, we'll put an image on screen to kind of help you find it in your app store and give you a minute. Uh, what a great um, resource to us as the church. And in there, we have embedded additional resources that connect with today's sermon, as well as the text and some ideas. And you can take notes right in there. So uh, just a great little resource to you. So download Uversion if you don't already have it on your phone. And then uh, in the lower right-hand corner, there's a little hamburger menu. Click that find events, click events, and then find Disciples Church in the event listing. It's probably the first one up, and uh, that'll give you access to what's going on today. You can also give uh, your, uh, your first fruits and your offerings right in that app today. Otherwise, uh, during our closing time of worship, we have a, a worship station in the back with all the implements you would need to give, whether you're giving cash or a check or texting it in. It's all right there and back. And we just want to encourage us as a body increasingly to engage with that in a physical way so that uh, our gifts back to God don't just become rote, uh, but that we engage in that. So take advantage of that uh, if you'd like. Hey, um, a little sneak peek about next week before we dive into Scripture. Um, th there's this, um, this concept that we were even singing about today. I was going to grab one of the lyric sheets to get it correct, but... Um, our affections, our devotions poured out on the feet of Jesus. And it just, it had me uh, just rambling in thought real quick. And I promise to not preach because uh, it's Carrie's turn. Uh, but I was just thinking as we were worshiping, what in the world, who in the world is this Jesus that he could tap some young boys on the shoulder who grew up with him and say, drop everything right now and come be my students. And they would do it. Who's that guy? <laughs> who, who is that guy that he enters a party and sits down, and a woman runs down the hall, I imagine, and grabs a $1,000 bottle of perfume and breaks it open and dumps it over his feet and anoints him with this perfume? Who is that? <laughs> who is that person that somehow doesn't demand that sort of treatment or that sort of uh, invitation, but people just willingly do it, poured out on the feet of Jesus. Who, who is this Jesus that his friends, when they're faced with the option to renounce his name yet again or die for following him, not only do they choose to die, they say, don't you dare hang me on a cross like you did Jesus. I can't die the same way. I don't deserve it. Flip me upside down. Who is that? What, what in the world kind of 
leader and redeemer and savior and friend is that, that people do those things willingly. Not because it's written on some page that they must, but because it's what they're compelled to do. And uh, at the heart of, of part of the purpose of why we gather each week is to tap into who is this Jesus. Next week, uh, Tita Everstead will be with us. And uh, oh my gosh, guys, uh, I tell you what, um, Tita is from Guatemala City. And every summer when we go down to Guatemala, there's always a moment on the trip of the day when we're with Tita, this frail 60-year-old woman who weighs maybe 105 pounds, tiny little thing, where uh, in the course of the walk, she sits down on a flight of stairs, always in a different place, and just begins to tell us about Jesus. And it is life-changing. <laughs> and we hang on her every word. Um, in her broken English, with her gentle way, we hang on every word. Who is this Jesus? Uh, and so please don't miss next week. Bring your family and friends. Bring your neighbors. Uh, bring everybody you know. We're also going to kick off our Guatemala outreach for the year ahead so you can have your first formal opportunity to purchase clean water for a family for two years. You can begin to explore if God's inviting you to be part of this summer's team, which we're going to need. We'll explain all that. But uh, just don't, don't miss next week because uh, Tita's going to tell us about this Jesus that makes people drop everything, pour out perfume, and die upside down. Uh, but this week, uh, we get to hear from our good, good friend, Carrie Bender, who is going to tell us about Jesus. And so, uh, might I invite you, we're a small group today, might I invite you to uh, circle up in your spirit and, uh, and surround yourself with scripture and uh, get ready to hear about this Jesus. Uh, give a big warm welcome to Carrie Bender. Well, I'm ready for a benediction. <laughs> Fantastic. Thrilled to be here. Um, you know, earlier the, the question, have you guys started singing um, Christmas songs already? Um, I, like, I've been singing for a long time. Um, I love Christmas. Um, I love the stories around Christmas. I uh, listened to, uh, to Stuart's um, sermon from last week. And uh, talking about movies and kind of Christmas movies, I love the Christmas movies. My favorite Christmas movie is The Christmas Story. Not, not The Christmas Story with Jesus, but The Christmas Story with Ralphie. And um, I remember getting my first BB gun and being warned to not shoot my eye out, literally, um, at Christmas time. And uh, what's, uh, as you think about Christmas, what's your, um, what's your best Christmas story? Um, I have to admit that uh, when I think about my, my best Christmas story, it's difficult to, uh, to kind of narrow it down. Some, some of my Christmas story, I don't even remember. I was so young. This is a picture of, uh, of me and my dad. My dad's uh, name is Clarence. Uh, we, uh, we lost dad a few years ago to Alzheimer's. I was probably about, um, I don't know, just shy of two, south of two years old. I was quite famous for pulling the Christmas tree down on myself. Um, I did it three, three times on Christmas Eve. Um, I was kind of a champion, a champion at it. And um, I, I remember, I mean, when I think about Christmas stories, I, I remember the, the Christmas that, that I got crisscross crash, the, the Hot Wheels. Uh, it was a figure eight race car track. They, I think they still make it, but now you need like batteries or to plug it in. Um, there was no electricity when I was growing up. And so you had a little hand crank and you would turn that in and went, 
and then you'd shoot these cars through these two styrofoam wheels that you were spinning, and they would go around this, this, uh, this eight, uh, kind of figure eight track, round and round and round, and you'd put two or three cars in, and they would keep just barely missing each other as they would cross that center of that, uh, that figure eight until finally they didn't miss each other, and they would just smash into each other, and it was fantastic. I, I, remember, that, uh, I remember that Christmas so, so well. I remember the Christmas, my, uh, my freshman year of high school, um, I had, uh, I had a, quite a good number of friends that had gotten leather jackets um, over the course of, uh, of the, be- the fall of my freshman year. And, uh, and I desperately, desperately wanted a leather jacket. But my parents were, were quite um, poor. We were not, uh, not wealthy. We were kind of bottom middle class farmers, but we didn't know it because we were farmers. So like, you know, like we had steaks the size of a plate for dinner. Um, we were just cash poor. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I knew that I wasn't going to get a leather jacket. And I remember my dad walking in that Christmas with a box and giving me a leather jacket. Um, I remember my brother, who's four years older than me. I don't remember what he got, but it was insignificant. And I remember the next Christmas, my brother getting a leather jacket. And I got very, very little. It was a story reminding me that Christmas isn't about me, right? Um, It is. It's all about me. And yet at the same time, it's not about me at all. It's an amazing, an amazing Christmas story. I, I remember my first Christmas married. Uh, married my, my wife Stacy, who's currently in Minnesota, experiencing what Christmas weather is supposed to be like. Um, not, not this stuff. Um, it, it bothers me. I walk into Home Depot, and it's Christmas. And I walk out of Home Depot, and it's like spring or fall or something here. But, uh, but it's not really Christmas weather. But I remember Stace and I got married. Um, we got married in the early spring of the year, and, uh, and we immediately, uh, immediately were with child. And so by the time Christmas rolled around, our first Christmas, Stacy was, as the King James Version would have said, great with child. I remember the anticipation of that, uh, that first Christmas with a pregnant wife, wondering what the future would hold. I remember... Christmases with my, with my own children. I, I remember the Christmas when we, uh, uh, about 11, uh, 11, 12 years ago, when we gave our daughter um, a beagle, and uh, and how excited was she she was to get this beagle that immediately got named Bagel, um, Bagel the Beagle. Um, I remember last Christmas, um, the day after Christmas, we had to put Bagel down. I remember being there with Beth on Christmas Day, knowing that that was going to happen the next day. All the sadness of that, and yet all the joy of remembering that. Christmas for me isn't, um, isn't just simply one story, right? I mean, there, there's these individual stories, but there's the, this compilation that as I, enter, as I enter into this Christmas season, right, uh, two and a little bit more weeks from today, um, all of these stories are wrapped up into Christmas for me. So it is when we, when we think about the Bible, we can think about the Bible in, in terms of, is it a book of many, many stories, right? And we all know the stories, or at least most of us do. Some of them are very familiar to us. Some of them are less familiar. But, but we, we know the stories. We know the stories, at, the, at least, of Jesus' birth, 
Um, we probably know the story of, uh, of Jesus' death and ultimate resurrection. We've heard the stories of, uh, of Noah and, uh, and David. Um, we're familiar with the story maybe of Esther and uh, the story of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, we, we're familiar with all these different stories, but, but is the Bible a, a compilation of a whole bunch of stories, or is it rather kind of like our own lives, that, that it's, not simply, um, it's not simply this never-ending list of different stories, but is actually one story, a unified story, a, a story that's trying to, uh, to tell us something, a story that's trying to tell us about someone. I'd like you if, you, if you wouldn't mind, this isn't our, our text for the, for the day, but, but if you have your Bibles, if you turn to Psalm um, 118 and read it with me, um, Psalm 118, uh, if you're uh, using the U version, it's, it's one of the texts that's uh, supplied for you in that, which by the way, what an amazing tool that is. Psalm 118, I, I was thinking about reading just part of it, but, but I actually want to read the whole thing for you. It's, it's not, a long, um, not a long chapter. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let all Israel repeat, his faithful love endures forever. Let Aaron's descendants, the priests, repeat, his faithful love endures forever. Let all who fear the Lord repeat, his faithful love endures forever. In my distress, I prayed to the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Yes, the Lord is for me. He will help me. I will look in triumph at those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in people. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Though hostile nations surrounded me, I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. Yes, they surrounded me and attacked me, but I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. They swarmed around me like bees. They blazed against me like a crackling fire, but I destroyed them all with the authority of the Lord. My enemies did their best to kill me, but the Lord rescued me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. Songs of joy and victory are sung in the camp of the godly. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. The strong right arm of the Lord is raised in triumph. The strong right arm of the Lord has done glorious things. I will not die. Instead, I will live to tell what the Lord has done. The Lord has punished me severely, but he did not let me die. Open for me the gates where the righteous enter, and I will go in and thank the Lord. These gates lead to the presence of the Lord, and the godly enter there. I thank you for answering my prayer and giving me victory. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord is God shining upon us. Take the sacrifice and bind it with cords on the altar. You are my God. I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. This, this is a, a story. When we hear this story, I, I think sometimes, I, I love the, the, the series that you guys are in, taking a look at the names of God. And, um, and when Stu and I were taking a look at dates, I found out this was the date, and then Stu let me know yesterday that we were going to be talking about Cornerstone. I'm just kidding. He, 
he let me know before yesterday. I think it was Thursday. No, um, but, but uh, this, this question of cornerstone, and this is one of those cornerstone texts about cornerstones, is Psalm 118. It's actually quoted in the New Testament. Matter of fact, in, in many respects, this is the one where it all stems from. Uh, Isaiah also, when he talks about a cornerstone that's coming, is looking at this. When we hear this text, we, we primarily think of it um, as a text of prophecy, of, of foretelling that, uh, that Jesus is coming, that there will be a cornerstone. And, and that is true, but this story is also a story about another king. It's a story about a king then and a king to come. It was the story about King David, in that, uh, that there was a, a resistance to him being elevated and lifted up to be king. There were those who plotted against him. Uh, leaders within the country itself who plotted against David that he would not become the king. But, but that conspiracy against David failed because of God's faithfulness to David, because of God's strength to David. And David overcame and he became a cornerstone, the, the, the king of, of Israel. And so too, then there's another cornerstone that, that will come, a, another king, a Messiah that will be set up. It's a, it's a both and. This is important for us to get our minds wrapped around. And it's not just simply so that we historically understand what this text, Psalms, is talking about. It's so that we can more appropriately understand the Christmas story and why Jesus quotes this passage in Matthew chapter 21 that we're going to take a look at in just a moment. There's something of deep, significant theological weight happening in this. And that is that, that, that God's story is wrapped up in our story. Or to say it more appropriately, our story is wrapped up inside of God's story. That, that David's story isn't just simply a story about David, but David's story is a story about a God who sets the cornerstone, who, who's at work in his creation. That, that, that our story is wrapped up in the story of a God who is active, who is participating with us, inviting us into his story. And so the, the Bible is made up of all these different stories, but it's about one story, a story, a story about a God who creates and who loves. A story about a people who rebel and reject the love of God and the story of a God who will not allow his plans to be thwarted but will come to his people again and again providing a way providing a cornerstone providing salvation providing a rock providing a foundation providing yes even himself in the person of his son that that is the story. And so when we, when we get to the text for today, Matthew chapter 21, this is what's all behind it, that it's not just one story, but it's the story, it's the story that's told over and over again, the story of a garden, the story of a building, the story of a family. And for today's text, it's, it's, kind, of, uh, it's kind of like a mashup, if you're into music, of all of these stories. Or if you're more into food, it's kind of like going to a fusion restaurant. And so I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. And if you are able and would be willing to stand with me as we read the text for today, Matthew, chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. Matthew, 
we believe, as the people of God, that the, Holy, that the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write down these words nearly 2,000 years ago. And we also believe, as the people of God, that that same Spirit that inspired Matthew now enlightens us in the reading of the text. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. Now listen to another story. A certain landowner planted a vineyard, built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. I think it says grape juice because we're Baptists, but eventually the grape juice gets turned into wine. But anyway, don't tell my mom. Thank God she doesn't have the internet. She won't be able to hear the sermon. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent his servants to collect his share of the crop, but the farmers grabbed his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. So the landowner sent another large, a larger group of his servants to collect for him, but the results were the same. Finally, the owner sent his son, thinking, surely they will respect my son. Which, by the way, any of you who are fathers or mothers out there, who would think that way? Oh yeah, they've killed everybody else that I sent. I've got a brilliant idea. I'm going to send my son, the one whom I love the most. That's not going to be a problem. This story is going to end well. Nobody thinks this way. And believe me when I tell you, the people hearing the story for the first time are thinking, this guy's nuts. And they're right. But when the tenant farmers saw his son coming, they said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate. Come on, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. When the owner of the vineyard returns, Jesus asked, what do you think he will do to those farmers? Which, by the way, I love the title that the NLT gives this. The wicked farmers, right? Or the evil farmers. I just... That's fantastic. What do you think he will do to these wicked, evil farmers? The religious leaders replied, he will put the wicked men to a horrible death and lease the vineyard to others who will give him his share of the crop after each harvest. Then Jesus asked them, didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is, a, and it is wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce the proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. When the leading priests and Pharisees heard the parable, they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. They wanted to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowds who considered Jesus to be a prophet. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would add your understanding and blessing to the reading and the proclamation of your word today. Father, we pray that words that are spoken in truth would be taken to root and change us. Father, any word that is spoken in falsehood, by, by, even possibly by mistake, Father, we pray that you would remove it from us. Father, thank you so much for your word. And thank you most of all for your word which became flesh and through the power of your spirit dwells among us even now. We pray these things in his name, the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. This, this is the story. 
this is the story of the Bible. It is the story of, of all of creation. It is your story. It is our story. Whether we realize it or not, this is the story. It is the story of a God who creates and who desperately loves his creation. In this story, it's about a, it's about a farmer, a, a landowner, who, a gardener, if you will, who, who, plants, who plants a field. He lovingly protects it and builds a hedge around it. He gets everything ready and prepares it. And then he gives it over to individuals who are to care for it the way he would care for it. Love it the way he would love it. To use the language of Genesis, the language of the creation story, that they would bear his image in this garden, on this farm. This is the story. The story of a gardener, the story of a farmer, the story of a, a landowner, of a king, the story of a, a builder, of a, of a God who creates and who loves and who lovingly instills and, and gives out that which he has created to the care of those whom he loves. This is the story that, that Jesus tells. That, and it's a story of rebellion, a story of rejection, a story of uh, ingratitude. It's a story of pride, if you will, uh, a belief that, that we, that, that, that these farmers themselves, these tenants, could be like God, that they could take his place, that, that they are the owners, they are the creators, they are the ones who deserve, rather than the ones who are dependent, the ones who are to be thankful, the ones who are to extend gratitude. This is a story that plays out, that plays out over and over and over again throughout the story of creation, throughout the story of the Bible throughout even our own stories. There's a, there's a, a children's video. I, I can't remember uh, the name of it anymore, but it, it talks about the story of judges. And in it, it, it talks about the circle of apostasy, which I love children's stories where they use words like apostasy, by the way. If you're unfamiliar what apostasy is or the circle of apostasy, it's that God desperately loves his people. His people reject him. God kind of says, hey, if, if you want to reject me, that, that's okay. You can do whatever you want. They fall into tremendous despair and calamity, and they cry out to God, and God sends a, a judge or someone to redeem them and bring them back to him because of his great love. At which point, humanity once again rejects God, and God says, okay, and they fall into calamity and despair and cry out to God. And God sends a judge and brings them back to himself because of his great love. At which point humanity once again rejects God's love. This is the wheel of apostasy. This is the story that Jesus is telling. They reject the prophets that God sent. They beat some, stone others, kill some. And what you would expect at some point from God is to say, enough is enough. But, but God's plans will not be thwarted. God's plan of, of love and, and protection and, and redemption will not be thwarted. And so he sends himself. He sends 
his son. He sends his son to, to redeem, to provide salvation. This, this is the story of the son. This is the story of the cornerstone, as Jesus says it. Both of them are rejected. The stone and the son, both then are elevated because of what they have done, because of their faithfulness to God. These are the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, that Christ did not consider equality with God something to be selfishly grasped onto, but rather emptied himself, taking on the very nature of a human being, submitting himself to death, yes, even death on the cross, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, that the Father has elevated the Son. He has taken this stone that has been rejected and placed it at the very heart, at the very corner of his story, at the very heart, at the very corner of his building, at the very center of his garden, at the very center of his family, his son. This, this is what God has done. It was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. When the prophet Isaiah wrote these words, therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. This is the prophecy of a, a stone that is coming, a, a cornerstone that will provide salvation. It was prophesied in Isaiah and it was fulfilled in the person of Christ. And in that fulfillment, um, Peter writes these words in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. It says, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed, so the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers and religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the relatives of the high priests. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people, are, you being, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man you crucified, by whom God raised from the dead, for Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus is that cornerstone, but he is, he's not to be trifled with. We, we, we forget that, that Jesus, the, the story of, uh, of Jesus, particularly around Christmas time, my, my daughter always says that her favorite time of the year is Christmas, because Christmas is the only time that Jesus is a baby, and she loves baby Jesus. And particularly around this time of the year, we think about, we think about baby Jesus as meek and mild, and we forget that Jesus was also jealous and wild, right? Matter of fact, even the Christmas story itself reveals that to us. In the Gospel of Luke, 
when Mary herself sings about her son, she speaks about him in, in these terms. It was reminded uh, to me again at our uh, staff Christmas party at the conference. We, uh, we read different passages of Scripture, and we were supposed to draw a picture about one of the things that, um, that, uh, that kind of struck us as we, as we did this. And, and one of our cellmates, I mean, one of our coworkers, um, actually uh, drew a picture of, uh, of the powerful being thrown down. These are the words of Mary about her son yet to be conceived and yet to be born. Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arms has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes in their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful, for he made his promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. This is the cornerstone, the, the cornerstone that, that those, those who reject him, as Peter says in Acts, there is no salvation outside of that name. There is no place in the building outside of being joined with the cornerstone. This is, this is, this is God's story. The, the story of a, a gardener that, that begins in Genesis, a God who plants and who waters. It's the story of a, a gardener who meets a woman in a garden with an empty tomb. Jesus is that gardener. It's, a, it's about a, a garden that we find ourselves in once again at the end of God's story in Revelation. A, a garden with a tree that, that provides everything that is needed. It's the story of a, it's the story of a builder. The story of Genesis is the story of God building his own temple. Uh, the, the seven days of creation, these, this language of seven days, temples were to be built in seven days. And in the seventh day, there was in, uh, uh, the, 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 the temple would be opened and God's presence would be there. This is the story of Genesis chapter 1, that, that God is building his temple and then he takes up residence in, in peace and in rest in the temple that he has created. It's a story of a, a building, the story of a, a temple, a story of God building his own people into that building, a story that Jesus says, in my Father's house, in his building that, that he is building, there are many, many rooms, and I am going to prepare a place for you there so that where I am, you may be also. It's the story of a family, a family with a, a father and a son who is our brother, and a spirit who binds us together. This is God's story, the story of a, a cornerstone, an eternal story, if you will. You see, God's been, God's been working on this building. He's been working in this garden. He's been the father of this family from the very, very beginning, and it stretches through today into eternity. It is our story. In the, the words of a, a theologian named Karl Barth, the Son of God came down in order to lift up the Son of Man. That, that God t- 
takes our story and wraps it up inside of his story. He takes our story of rejection, our story of pride, our story of of rejecting his love and wraps it back up into his story of redemption, of a son, of a cornerstone, of a gardener who comes again to to redeem his people. Paul talks about it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses uh, 19 through 22. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. God, from the, from the very beginning, has been, has been about building this building, his people. It's, it's an eternal house, a house that, that God sets the cornerstone. If you, if you get a chance, go home and, and just do a, a Google search of ruins and corners, right? Or if you've ever been to, like, ruins before. We, we had the opportunity, uh, my family and I had the, the opportunity, the privilege of living in Scotland for a year. And, uh, and so we had the opportunity to, to travel around and, and see some different ruins, Right? When you, when you see ruins of a building, what's, what's left standing? Yeah, it's the foundation, and particularly the foundation around a corner. It's the strongest part of the building. It's what ties everything together. The, the Bible tells us that, that God himself, Jesus, is that cornerstone. He's what, what ties things together. It's an eternal. It is set, and it is set straight. I remember as a small child, I... Uh, was with my dad. We went over to a neighbor's to put up a barn. And um, I, I kid you not, it seemed, particularly for a child, it seemed like hours and hours and hours just to set that first corner. I remember asking my dad, like, why is this taking so long? And he says, you don't understand. If you don't get that corner set straight, if you don't have a straight corner, then, then everything else doesn't fit together. Everything else is a mess. Everything else is a disaster. It is a weak building. The importance, of course, my, my wife and I made the foolish decision to live in a 1965 Airstream trailer for two years. That wasn't the foolish part. The foolish part was buying one that was completely stripped out and we were going to remodel it. When there are no corners, there are no accurate measurements, right? I, I'm literally taking cardboard and like holding it up and like cutting out the cardboard and then laying it out on the pieces of wood, and then cutting that, and then taking it in, and like, oh, you got to be kidding me, and then marking it with a pencil, and then sanding off where I marked with the pencil, trying to get it into these, these, these curves, and because there's no, there's no true corners. God, God provides for us, for our lives, an accurate corner. He sets the place so that we know how to live. Again, going back to Paul and Philippians chapter 2, that, that we should be like-minded, having the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. It is an eternal, it is not just simply for now, but something that we look forward to in Christ's return. He is our cornerstone and assurance now 
and our hope, our hope for the future. But it is a strange building. It's a strange building, particularly as you get into Ephesians and you realize that apparently this building has no walls, or at least no internal walls. Because earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, it says God's already torn down all the walls. The walls that divide us, right? That, that we're in this together, this beautiful building. That, that there are no walls dividing us from one another. That we're to be unified in him. And it's also a strange building because the chief architect is actually the cornerstone. And those of us that are being built into this building, along with the prophets and the apostles, are the ones who build the building. That we are both builders and building at the same time. And that it is all God's story. I don't know, I don't know how messy your story is. I, I don't know how disastrous your story is. I, I don't know what your last week looked like. But what I know for certain is that God, who is the chief cornerstone, who is the gardener of the garden that you find yourself in, however many weeds are there, however messy it is, however dead that garden appears, that, that, that whatever your story is like, that God is the author of that, that he is the gardener, that he is the builder, that though your house may seem to be in disarray, God provides the cornerstone to give us direction now and hope for the future. Whatever your story is, however broken it is, God can wrap it up inside of his story and provide redemption and peace and comfort. There's an old song, it's all the way back from like the 1930s. The, the Carter family recorded it. Uh, if you're familiar, maybe more with Johnny Cash, um, it would have been Johnny Cash's like grandfather-in-law um, recorded it along kind of with his family. And it's called Working on a Building. Do any of you know that song? I've been working on a building. I've been working on a building. It's a Holy Ghost building for my Lord, for my Lord. And then there's a verse that says, If I was a liar, I'd tell you what I would do. I would quit my lying and I'd work on a building too. I've been working on a building. And the second verse says, If I was a drunkard, I'd tell you what I would do. I would quit my drinking, and I'd work on the building too. And you'd think what the next verse would be, something about maybe, um, maybe about dancing or playing cards or smoking or something like that, some, some other type of thing that you'd put out there. But it's fascinating. Does anybody know what the third verse of that song is? Anybody? It says, if I was a preacher, I'd tell you what I would do. I would quit my preaching, and I'd work on a building too. I've been working on a building. I've been working on a building. It's a Holy Ghost building for my Lord, for my Lord. See, we get so caught up. We get so caught up in our sins or we get so caught up in what we're doing that we forget that the story is actually God's story. It's his building. I don't know what you have to do this week, but I would encourage you to, to give it all up to God. Um, do it for him. Do it because it's his story. It's his building. We sing the same story that the angels sang. The, the story that that, that he was born so that we, may more, we no more may die. 
He was born so that we can be raised from death. He was born so that we can have second birth. To, to retell, to retoil our gardens. To retell and to reshape our stories. To rebuild the brokenness of our buildings. To redeem our lives and to call us to be his family. May that bring us great deal of comfort and hope as we enter into this season celebrating the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are the one who has been working on a building. It's a strange building, but it is an eternal building. It is a building that, uh, that you have started, and, and though it seems at times that our best efforts to thwart it, uh, you come again and again and rebuild and redeem. And so, Father, with the angels, we sing your praises. We thank you and praise you for the coming of your Son, the chief cornerstone, who provides redemption now and hope for the future. Father, we thank you that he was born so that, that we may no longer die, that we would be raised again, and that we would have second birth. Father, we thank you and we praise you this day and every day. Herald angels sing glory to the newborn King, peace on earth and mercy.